кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас свой видео никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. As NATO wraps up a historic summit in Vilnius, the chaos continues from the fallout of Yevgeny Prigozhin's failed insurrection in Russia. Despite denouncing Prigozhin as a traitor, Vladimir Putin nevertheless met with the caterer-turned-warlord and other members of his Wagner group just five days after the aborted rebellion. Meanwhile, one top general, Lieutenant General Stanislav Ruzitsky, was assassinated while jogging in a park in Krasnodar, and another... Major General Ivan Popov was fired after criticizing military leadership. And Prigozhin's one-time ally, General Sergei Sorovikin, remains missing. So what the hell is going on in Russia? And how should we assess the results of the NATO summit? Well, I've got two great guests to break it all down, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Thanks, Brian. Good to have you. Also joining us from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, a senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of its special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS, Inside the Armor, Army of Terror, and is currently working on a new book about Russia's GRU. Welcome back to The Vertical, Michael. Always a pleasure, Brian. Always a pleasure to have you. So I want to dive into the post-insurrection landscape in Russia in the first half and then look at the NATO summit below the fold. So on the, on the post-insurrection landscape, I want to take two items in turn, one at a time. Uh, the aftermath of Prigozhin's failed rebellion is defying all the templates and expectations we have for understanding Russian politics. Initially, Prigozhin apparently agreed to go into exile in Belarus. Then he turned up in Russia, reportedly to retrieve his gun and some gold bars uh, that the KFSB had confiscated in the search of his home. Then the Kremlin confirmed this week that Prigozhin and other Wagner members have actually met Putin just days after the rebellion. Moreover, after initially attacking Prigozhin, Russian state-controlled media now appears confused about what type of narrative to present to the public. Michael, my first reaction after the insurrection was that Prigozhin was a dead man walking. But after the past week, I can't help but wonder if you can indeed come at the king miss and live to tell about it, to paraphrase the immortal Omar Little of The Wire. It appears that either Putin is afraid of Prigozhin or Wagner, uh, or he's biding his time. And I can't, I honestly cannot figure it out. How do you read this, Michael? What does it tell us about the state of the Putin regime and the capacity of Russia to continue its war of aggression against Ukraine? Well, I mean, like you, and I think like a lot of other Russia watchers, it's, it's both um, perplexing and amusing. Um, to see a guy who, as you say, uh, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm still not 100% sold on couching this as a mutiny, as opposed to, say, a putsch or a, even a coup. I agree. Uh, more reporting that comes out, the more it, it certainly looks like he had help from the inside, or at least he had, uh, if not witting and willing accomplices, than those who acquiesced to it, which is, amounts to the same thing, right? I mean, Sotovikin, you said, is missing. According to the Wall Street Journal, he's been detained as have uh, another, uh, a host of other senior Russian military officials. And I don't know if that's true, but um, there's a lot of, you know, kind of rumor mongering and speculation about what, what happened that made him and his um, little cohort or, or, or cadre of mercenaries stop at 120 miles from Moscow. Um, among them, I can tell you uh, that uh, Putin did the old tried and tested method of taking hostages, kidnapping members of the family, family members of Wagner. Um, one rumor had it that uh, Prigozhin's own family, his son, may have been taken hostage, if not worse, and that's what turned it all around. But again, we don't really know. It's Russia has yeah. become even more than it used to be a, a black hole 
uh, Kremlinology is, is I think, a fool's errand at, at this stage. Um, but I think there are some takeaways here. One, um, let's just look at sort of the regime as it stands today. If you go on Vikontakta or the internet and you post something that says this war is immoral and wrong and our boys should come home, you can get, what, 25 years in prison for treason for doing that, yep. right? You're not going to get a parlay with Putin. You're not going to get to collect your money and your guns and sit out in a, a tent encampment in, in Minsk. Um, you're in deep shit. You try to overthrow the government or at least seize a major military headquarters, shoot down half a dozen helicopters, including the most sophisticated electronic warfare fellows that the Russian military has got. And actually, there's even more evidence of kinetic engagements on the ground level, which surprised me at the time because I, I thought this was mostly uh, uncontested. You do all that and, you know, you get to live out the rest of your days in a state of, of retirement, but also come and go as you please. Your passport, for instance, does not get confiscated because Prigozhin has made at least, you know, a few trips back to Russia since the coup. Um, there's no other way to read this other than, than, than Putin's regime is a lot weaker than it may seem, uh, particularly as the West has seen it and continued to see it throughout the course of the war. And, you know, if I'm kind of reading the tea leaves in terms of increased American and, and NATO security assistance. Uh, today, uh, Andrei Yermak, the sort of gray cardinal of the Zelensky administration, came out and said the Biden administration is very, very close to making a decision on Atakum's, um, you know, the, the uh, supersonic artillery rockets that the Ukrainians, that is the last thing on the shopping list I saw a year and a half yep. ago that they want and that they didn't get from the United States. Also on that list, by the way, had been, was cluster bombs, which they're now getting. So, I mean, where are we today? It seems that, you know, Putin, the, the myth of, of the almighty indomitable Putin has, has, if not fallen, taken quite a beating. Um, this is not a stable or secure regime. People who had dismissed Prigozhin as um, some, some jumped up, you know, financier of a not so private army, but nobody to be reckoned with and certainly not a, someone who could challenge uh, Putin's power, um, I think we're in for a big surprise. I mean, frankly, the only person who predicted something like this was going to happen was Christo Grozev, uh, formerly of, of Bellingcat, who maintains very good ties, not ties, but communicates a lot, I should say, with people within Wagner who had been anticipating that we were reaching a critical mass in terms of their discontent mm -hmm. and actual contempt for uh, the Ministry of Defense, Shoigu and Gerasimov in particular. So, I mean, you know, if, if you're the Ukrainians, this is good news because it shows you can get a lot, you can get away with a lot more, including cross-border raids. Remember the last time the three of us were all together, we were talking about if you were, you know, Kirill Budanov, what would you be cooking up in terms of trying to destabilize Russia? And that was before, I think, all of these raids into Belgorod took place mm -hmm. using Russian proxies, right? Uh, you want to talk about the assassination of a general in, in yeah. 2000? I mean, it, it, it shows that, that, that Putin can be bloody. And more, more to the point, more I, I think more importantly, actually, uh, he can be bloodied and he'll shrug it off. You know, this is not somebody who looks set to, to launch World War III or deploy WMD anymore. Um, and I, I hope that this is this new sort of newfangled, uh, not even wisdom, but just a collection of facts is being incorporated or assimilated into the Washington DC strategic thinking here, because for forever we've been told we mustn't do X because Putin will do Y. And yet we have consistently done that, which we were, we were told, you know, is going to precipitate an untoward or catastrophic reaction. And so far crickets. Yeah. I was very happy to see in president Biden's comments in Helsinki uh, this week that he actually did say it's, it's unlikely that Putin's going to use nukes to dampen that hard that the Russians are trying so hard to play. I don't think a day goes by in which Dmitry Medvedev doesn't utter the word nuclear or World War Three or, or 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 whatever. Um, in terms of like the well, it's 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 impossible to get inside Putin's head. It's a pretty dark place where you can't really see anything. But I'm I mean I'm looking at this thinking either he is afraid of Wagner or he is biding his time or maybe a combination. Of the two, I, that that's the only conclusion I can reach. Because as I said, this has broken every single template I've ever had for understanding one, Russian politics. One final point before we turn to David, because I'm, I'm very curious to hear his thoughts on this. Is you know, the Ukrainians have done 
their own sort of um, sociological survey of the adversary. Um, in some ways covertly, in other ways not so covertly, but they have anatomized Wagner um, using people who communicate with Russians and, and, and talk to the, these Wagner operatives or fighters through social media and so on. And one of the things they found is that Wagner really operates more like a cult than just a, a, a mercenary corps. Um, there is fanatical, or there was up until recently, I suppose, fanatical devotion to Prigozhin. They refer to him as Batya, dad. Mm -hmm. uh, utter disdain for Ministry of Defense, uh, conventional forces, conscripts, mobilized, whatever. Um, why are you fighting? There's no glory. There's no money. If you die, I mean, it's chump change. At least our families will be rich by comparison. Um, so I think, yeah, if, if, if there's any understanding of what this monster is that Putin allowed to be created and actually created himself. I mean, remember, he's now acknowledged, confessed yeah. to have armed Wagner to the tune of what, a billion rubles or something in the last year. Um, he knows that he can't simply just disband this and hope that the problem will go away, nor, it seems, can he completely incorporate uh, 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 these these men at arms into the ranks of the conventional military. So in a way, I think this is sort of crisis management for him, not your typical Stalinoid reprisal and punishment that where you just basically kill everybody. Yeah, the last time I saw Putin knock this far kind of off his game was in the immediate aftermath of the Nemtsov assassination. Remember when he disappeared from public for 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 weeks? It also is reminiscent to me on a much this is a much smaller scale the Siloviki War of two thousand seven. Remember when a bunch of different uh, Siloviki were 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 killing each other? Um, it was basically over control of customs points. But this is a much that was kindergarten compared to this. Let's bring David in here. I want to get your thoughts and David also uh, your thoughts on all this and also. I mean, you worked on these very issues in government. Uh, what would you be doing right now if you were in your old job at state working on Russia and, and Ukraine? Uh, talking to as many people inside and outside of government as possible. Um, look, I, I wrote a, a piece of the Bush website uh, Monday after uh, the mutiny, push, coup, whatever you want to call it, in which, that I title More Questions and Answers. I, I, since then, as we approach the third week uh, of this, I think there are even more questions than there are answers. And uh, I'll add to what Michael said. I mean, why has Putin talked about all the funds that have gone to Prigozhin and Wagner? Uh, billions of dollars, he said, and they have no account for it. Whose purpose is that serving? Uh, to show that the Russian government has no idea what it's what Prigozhin has done with all these funds. Um, why? It, why did he meet with? him and, and other commanders on June 29th, when Peskov said they didn't know where Prigozhin was at that point. Um, and the whole lead up to this, I mean, this, this in some ways in retrospect was rather predictable, going back to last fall with Prigozhin's relentless attacks on Shoigu and Gerasimov in particular, um, that at some point he might just snap. And I think the the, the big issue for him was the decree to put the private yeah. military corporations under the Russian Ministry of Defense, which Prigozhin viewed as a threat. All that said, I'm actually not yet sold that this has weakened Putin. Mm. Um, I, too, had the initial reaction that Putin emerges from this weakened and this loser. But... There's just something going on in my head that suggests he, whether this was staged or not, and I, I'm not a conspiracist, but that he is using this to ferret out who's loyal and who isn't. I think the term came up in your podcast last week, Brian, loyalty over confidence yes. uh, um, is something that Putin prizes. And we don't know where Surovikin is. We actually don't know where Prigozhin is. Uh, maybe we'll find out he's moved into the Kremlin. Who knows? Um <laughs> And, um, you know, Popov has, has been fired. Um, you got to wonder if Putin is just more focused on who's going to stand with him no matter what happens in Ukraine and who is going to be disloyal to him. So I find the whole thing one of the most baffling episodes since all of us have been studying this place. You know, for some of us, it goes back three and a half decades. I'm yeah. Yeah, no, for some of us, it goes back to the Soviet times. And I am more perplexed right now analyzing what's going on inside Russia. And I've been talking to a lot of my 
my colleagues who have been following this as long as I have, and we are all perplexed. We are all perplexed. Um, and we can kind of basically look at some data points. And the data points I'm looking at right now suggest, I mean, the, the media narrative is, 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 is really, really interesting right now. I mean, the media can't seem to decide what kind of narrative it wants to settle on this. So the public is getting a very mixed picture of, um, a, 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 of reality. I mean, I've always, the, 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 the framework I've always used to, to analyze this regime is that of a crime syndicate. And I don't do that glibly. I do that analytically. Um, it's basically the whole Russian system based on informal ties and, 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 and patronage networks resembles a crime syndicate. And Putin's role in this is to balance the clans. And he couldn't do it here. And if you can't do that, you're a useless godfather. And so this is where I'm thinking maybe if it objectively at the moment Putin isn't weak, and I can't see how this this can't undermine his authority over the over, over the over the long run. Brian, sorry, um, I agree, and and we also have to be careful not to paint Putin as this brilliant tactician and strategist. He wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if he was so freaking <laughs> smart. Um, this has turned out to be an unmitigated disaster for Russia. Of course, it's been awful for Ukraine too, uh, but it has been a disaster for Russia. So Putin has had amazing lasting power um, for over two decades now. But um, it, it's the old expression that we learned rather quickly in, in 2011 connected to the Arab Spring movements. These regimes seem stable until they're not. And, and we don't quite know what the tipping point is. Maybe this is part of the tipping point. I tend to think that Russian defeat in Ukraine is more likely to be yeah. a tipping point. And, and these are not disconnected. These obviously are very connected because Prigozhin and Wagner played a very important, or has been, have played a very important role in the fighting in Ukraine. And so with possibly Wagner in, in disarray, what, what impact does that have on Russian forces? And if I were a Russian soldier on the front line watching all this happen, I should say, why the hell am I on the receiving end of Ukrainian missiles and bullets while these guys are playing games in Moscow and Rostov and Voronezh? Yeah, no, it's, 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 I want to dive into the effect this is going to have on Russia's warfighting capability, because not only do we have disarray between Wagner and the military, we apparently have a lot of disarray within the military itself, itself. And that brings us to the second interesting development this week um the apparent chaos at the top of the russian military um lieutenant general stanislav ruzhitsky as i mentioned in the intro he's a submarine commander with the black sea fleet he was assassinated while jogging in krasnodar um, after posting his jogging routes on social media um and there's actually video of him jogging just before the the actual assassination uh, major general ivan popov um, one of the most respected generals in the russian military who is, has a lot of support in the rank and file he's the commander of the 58th army who was in charge of the front in zaporizhia one of the few fronts where russia was actually performing fairly well he was fired um reportedly after criticizing behind closed doors um military leadership he then uh, gave a message to his troops supposed to be a private message to his his troops, but it was leaked and published on Telegram by a Russian State Duma deputy, um, uh, uh, Andrei uh, Gruev, who was a previous commander of the 58th Army, where he was criticizing, apparently without naming him, Gerasimov himself. So you, 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 you have that. Then you have another Russian general, Lieutenant General Oleg uh, Sokov, who was killed in a strike on a hotel housing Russian military commanders in Berdyansk on Ukraine's occupied southern coast. And then, of course, Sergei Sovarykin, the commander of the Russian Air Force, who is the former head of the operation in Ukraine, replaced by Gerasimov, um, he is he's still missing. And one Russian lawmaker glibly said that he was quote taking a rest. David, uh, so let's go with Michael first on this. Uh, you really keep a close eye on the military. Unpack this for me. What the hell? I mean, it looks like I don't rule out uh, that the Ruzhitsky the Ruzhitsky assassination was a Ukrainian operation. I don't rule that out. Um, I don't know that that's yeah, the case, but I don't, I don't rule it out. Popov is interesting because his critiques of the leadership are almost identical to Prigozhin's, right? Which is very, very interesting. And he's very popular. Um, and then, of course, uh, Tsokov was, uh, was, was killed in a Ukrainian strike. But just unpack this, this disarray we have in the, in the Ukrainian and in the, uh, in the Russian uh, military. 
So about a year before the full-scale invasion, I was in Kyiv meeting with the former director of Bur, um, uh, Valery uh, Kondratyuk. And he was telling me stories from the 2014-2015 period when Ukrainian military intelligence was really the premier service. Um, Mark Polymeropoulos, former CIA officer, was in charge of Europe and Eurasia at the agency, uh, told me not too long ago that even at the time when most of Ukraine was in a state of disarray, the SBU was seen as completely infiltrated by the FSB, et cetera, et cetera. Gur stood out as a military intelligence service almost you know, par excellence for Europe, right? I mean, they, they were seen as very capable. And one of the things that struck with me is Kondratyuk said um, he was told by the U.S. government at the time, do not conduct operations inside Russian Federation territory. And the way he told me the story indicated that, A, he absolutely was going to and wanted to conduct operations inside Russian Federation territory, and B, the Americans knew the Ukrainians had a capability that although not very well publicized, was was profound. And I think what we've been seeing, and this isn't just about, you know, popping off some jogging uh, <laughs> submarine commander in Krasnodar, what we have seen, uh, especially in the last year since the Battle of Kyiv uh, was decided in Ukraine's favor, is uh, a real depth of infiltration of Russia. Uh, the use of Russian proxies, which have almost certainly been recruited by Gur. Uh, Kirill Budanov has taken on this sort of uh, almost messianic yeah. quality. He's the subject of memes. God knows I've made a few uh, on his behalf. Um, and I met him and I interviewed him. And you know he is every inch the, the Spetsnaz soldier. Uh, and for him, he has one objective, as he put it to me, which is, I will kill Russians anywhere on the planet until my country is liberated. And he has in, in, in recent weeks and months indicated that a lot of these operations that people in the West were sort of scratching their heads saying, how could this have happened, was indeed the work of his his service and its um, its cadres, including what they call partisans. So in other words, Russians that they have recruited. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book on the GRU, and what's fascinating about Gur is Gur is doing what the GRU used to do really well, you know, which mm -hmm. isn't surprising because all of these guys in the Ukrainian military will have gone through the same kind of uh, rigorous training and education as guys who wound up in Russian GRU. So they're mirror images of each other. Um, but, you know, look, this guy uh, was posting to, what is it called? Uh, uh, Strava or Star, Star? It's like a jogging app where you right. show the, the trajectory of what, which is the dumbest thing you could do if you were Russian <laughs> in the Ukraine. It's because you're basically telling them where you go and how often you go there. And I, I, I haven't chased this up, but, you know, and I, I it's probably not true because it's a little too good to be true, but there was an image of his social media with his little route, and a guy called Kirill Budanov, the head of Ukrainian military intelligence, liked the map that was posted, uh, uh, which it sounds to me like a trolling thing, but whatever. I mean, but this is the kind of thing that we have now come to expect. How could uh, a drone singe the Golden Dome of the Kremlin uh, or the Onion Dome of the Kremlin? No way this was done by the Ukrainians. Well, absolutely it was done by the Ukrainians, and they have the capability to do it because they launched drones at Russia from inside Russian Federation territory. Uh, one senior good commander very close to Budanov told me this uh, several months ago. So I think we, we have now entered into the phase of the slow motion degradation of the Russian regime by Ukraine, which again, just to show, you know, the old Lenin axiom that, you know, there are decades where nothing, or years where nothing happened and then there are years where decades happen, um, or is it months or weeks even? I mean, we, we have seen a kind of concertina of enormous developments and enormous kind of sea changes in the way we we think about either of these two countries. Now, Ukraine suddenly is a formidable military and intelligence threat to Russia. And it's, you know, I, I think that's something we all have to appreciate. Uh, and they, they've had this capability, and certainly they've had the, the, the will to do this for quite a while. But because of this existential crisis, this, this war of survival against genocide, a genocidal campaign of conquest, all the gloves have been taken off. Mm. They'll tell you that, you know. You seem to agree with me, Michael, that the Ruzhitsky thing, but you seem to confirm my suspicions that that was indeed our Ukrainian operation. I mean, look, you know, could it be that, that you know, the guy had some kind of like blood feud that was private? It's possible, yeah. It's possible, but I mean, all things being equal, if I had to put money on the table right now, I'd put $100 on a Ukrainian intelligence operation. Right. No, that's, that's, that's my thinking as well.
Be before I shift over to David, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, General Ivan, Major General Ivan Popov's situation. I mean, that one, that that's interesting because, again, his critiques of the military reflect those of of Prigozhin in a lot of ways. He's enormously popular. Um, he his criti his criticisms were behind closed doors. He was fired, and then the the recording of him speaking to his troops. Uh, with what appeared to be a broadside against Gadotimov, uh was leaked on Telegram. How do you read that whole situation? The, the Ukrainians have to be very happy with what's going on in some respects, which is uh, Surovikin, as, as brutal and barbaric as he is, is a fairly effective general. He's now removed from the playing field. Uh, Popov is, is now apparently removed from the playing field. He's had a, a good reputation overall. Uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, it's great that these generals who are seen as fairly capable, albeit barbaric, are no longer calling the shots here. So this, again, this this reinforces the point that it doesn't seem to be competence that Putin and the Kremlin are interested in. It's more loyalty. Yeah. And Popov was basically parroting what Prigozhin has been saying for months and months. Although Prigozhin obviously went a little further in the day before the mutiny when he uh, essentially undermined the justification for the invasion, yeah. saying nothing was happening that endangered Russia on February 24th, NATO wasn't a threat, and all of that. So all of this can't be good for morale on the Russian side, which was not good before and to the extent that Wagner may be in disarray, to the extent that the Russian military are getting some news and information about what's happening with all these machinations, uh, this is good for the Ukrainians as they continue their counteroffensive and pound away um, and, and deal with the minefields and everything. Um, so I, I, I think it is not helping the Russian cause. It's probably in Putin's mind helping his cause. And this is, we've talked many times before, the difference between Putin's interests and Russia's national interests. Right. And Putin doesn't seem to give a damn about his country or what's happening to his troops. They're, they're uh, dispensable. But as long as his grip on power is solidified, whether he's been diminished or not uh, from, from what happened on June 24th, uh, that seems to be the overriding concern. Yeah, no, and it's like if Putin only has so much bandwidth and he's got to use a lot of his bandwidth for regime survival, it doesn't leave a lot of bandwidth left for for to to, to fight the war, which is good news for Ukraine. Michael, on the Popov on the Popov thing, I mean, how do you like this going back to your remarks at the outset about Wagner effectively being a cult? When I when I listened to Popov's uh critique, I for two things struck me. One was how close it resembled Pedagogians. And I was thinking, hmm, so there, I mean, we already kind of always knew this in theory, that there were Wagner sympathizers inside the regular Russian armed forces. This seems to suggest that it's at, much, at a very high level and it's very widespread. How, how do you read the whole Popov situation? Yeah, I mean, and it, it also, it, it's redolent of something else, which is, you know, I've been a bit frustrated, and I not nearly as frustrated as the Ukrainians, in how... Um, Western news organizations have been covering this counteroffensive, right? And I think Ukraine, unfortunately, is the victim of its own outsized success in this regard. So everyone assumed that the minute this thing would start, it was going to be like Kharkiv, where, you know, the Russians right. just get addled back to, you know, their side of the border and Ukraine would, would conquer thousands of, and thousands of square miles of, of terrain overnight. And nobody I talked to in Kyiv a few months ago was was under any illusions that this was going to be more akin to the the Kherson counteroffensive than mm -hmm. than which by the way was a complete surprise and done in, in a kind of masterful way you know operationally that no one saw it coming um but one thing is is very clear to me and that is you know these these cruise missile strikes using storm shadow and and I mean now I'm, I would assume cluster bombs are are going to be in play very soon targeting um Weapons depots, uh, logistical hubs, um, uh, training academies or, or barracks—you um, know the, the military campuses of the Russian forces deep, deep behind enemy lines. This is a what what uh, the Australian General Mick uh, Ryan calls a campaign of corrosion, 
right? And it's sort of the war that you don't really see. We, we can isolate these sort of kinetic events as they happen, but if you take them in aggregate, they have done a great deal of damage to Russia's ability to get weapons and ammunition to the places they need to go and also conduct defensive operations. I mean, one of the, thing that, the things that Popov said in that, um, that message was that there's no counter-battering capability, right? And I don't know if you saw yesterday, uh, Ukraine's Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Maliar came out and said, we've noticed a precipitous drop in artillery fire from the Russian side in the south. Right. So again, you know, you're, you're not seeing columns of, of, of you know, uh, Abrams and Leopard tanks trying to plow through uh, Russian defensive lines, but you are seeing death by a thousand cuts. And I think that what will happen eventually assuming this strategy uh, is working. And, and again, we have evidence data suggests that it is from the Russian side. You are going to have a breakthrough moment and people will have sort of not seen it coming because they've now been conditioned to think that the counteroffensive has has stalled or it's, it's, it's crawling at a snail's pace. Um, but, you know, this is something Ukrainians emphasize. They know how to fight the Russians better than we do because they've been doing it not for a year and change, but for almost better better part of a decade, really, right? So they understand yeah. how the adversary thinks. And, you know, just on the final point about Wagner, coming back to Ukraine's rather formidable intelligence um, capability, Budanov, it was very interesting when I met with him, the only force on the other side that he ranks at all and was actually full of praise and respect and, and a kind of enemy's esteem for was Wagner. Everybody else he thought was a busted flush. Um, naval infantry, forget it. Their crewmen taken off of ships and handed a, a rifle and a pack and told, go go fight the Ukrainians. He, and, and, you know, whether or not he was overaking the pudding and, and downplaying, um, uh, you know, the, the martial prowess of the conventional units, I think this was designed from an information warfare warfare point of view to widen that, 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 mm -hmm. that exists between Wagner on the one hand and the MOD. On the other, and yeah, I mean, if, if you're if you're sitting in some god awful trench, which you've seen what the Russian trenches look like based on yeah. you know footage of what the Ukrainians have captured, and you know you're you're watching these guys who fly not even the the Russian tricolor but their own PMC flag in Bakhmut, uh, they come back with these stories of of you know kind of Stalingrad style military glory. They're making a shit ton of money by Russian standards. They have a sense of of, of pride and, and self-worth. Of course you're going to envy them. Of course you're going to look to them and say, I wish I had some of that instead of, you know, what I what I here. And in Wagner, I think it's interesting too. They fight for Wagner first and foremost. You know, so it's it's not they're not prosecuting the Russian national interest per se. They are burnishing their own legend with these these military. Right. Now that they've quit the field, I mean they withdrew from Bakhmut before the coup. Uh, several days before the coup, but we are now seeing what Ukrainian advances uh, most significantly in and around Bakhmut, the mm -hmm. northern and southern flank. So, could we well see a state of affairs in the coming weeks where Bakhmut is encircled from the Ukrainian side? And what would that do for the great symbolic victory that actually wasn't uh, at the time? Because it, you know the the actual seizure of Bakhmut by Wagner in particular was eclipsed and overshadowed by the Prigozhin feud with Shoigu and Gerasimov. So if the Ukrainians take back this city that Russia poured infinite resources in, 60,000 casualties, uh, upwards of that, maybe 100,000, um, what's left of this campaign? It's getting <laughs> dug in morass, which is increasingly becoming not so dug in as the Ukrainians also creep in and reclaim settlement after settlement in Zaporizhia and Donetsk. And Bakhmut isn't even that strategically um, important. Michael, you're giving me an idea here for a future show that I might want to have you on about Ukrainian intelligence, because I think that is a fascinating and underexplored area of this whole whole thing. I mean, I, I, honestly, books should be written about that aspect of the Ukrainian war. Um, I hope they I hope they will be. We will have the half David, for you. David, do you do you have anything to add before we move into the second half and talk about NATO? All right. Well, on that note, we will shift gears in a few moments. We'll continue our discussion and look at the results of this past week's NATO summit in Vilnius, what it means for the alliance and what it means for Ukraine. 
I'd like to remind you you're listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Executive Director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. And also joining me from New York City is veteran journalist Michael Weiss, senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael, also the author of the book ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, and is currently working on a new book about Russia's GRU. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big five-star rating in review as that, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast to read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. And now you can also follow us on threads at Power Vertical. So please do follow us on threads as we are trying to build up our, uh, our following there. When Putin and his craven lust for land and power unleashed his brutal war on Ukraine, he was betting NATO would break apart. He was betting NATO would break. He thought our unity would shatter at the first testing. He thought Democratic leaders would be weak, but he thought wrong. So the much-anticipated NATO summit in Vilnius this week began and ended with a bang. As the summit opened, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan dropped injections to Sweden, joining the alliance, clearing the way for NATO's 32nd member. And as the summit concluded, the alliance stopped short of giving Ukraine what it wanted, an invitation to join with a clear timeline, which, uh, which was supported by NATO's Eastern European members, but resisted by Germany and the United States. Instead, Ukraine was promised an invitation when allies agree and conditions are met, leaving both the timing and the conditions unclear. This initially sparked an angry reaction from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who called the decision unprecedented and absurd. Zelensky later softened his response and thanked the alliance for its support and for the security guarantees given by some G7 members. And U.S. President Joe Biden gave a rousing speech after the summit in which he compared the current standoff with Russia to the Cold War and vowed that NATO would not waver in its support for Ukraine. David, on Ukraine, I am looking in a, on NATO, on the NATO summit and Ukraine, I am choosing to look at the glass as half full here rather than half empty. Uh, Kyiv is poised to receive some pretty serious security guarantees, although the details are, still need to be worked out. And importantly for me, a, NATO, a Ukraine-NATO council has been formed, which gives Ukraine a voice in the alliance. Do you share my optimism, David? Day two, I would say, Brian, was much better than day one. Day one was, I think, a day of disappointment, although to, to be frank, I think President Zelensky and his advisors probably had an unrealistic expectation of what they were going to accomplish. It was as if they hoped and expected that his arrival in Vilnius would change minds, and it didn't. Um, and this, I think the outcome was rather predictable. And I say that as somebody who wishes NATO was more forward-leaning on this, and I wish the communique indicated that at next year's Washington, D.C. summit, that Ukraine would become a member. I think uh, kicking this down the road, kicking this can down the road, and using the phrase that you mentioned, join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met, is a source of frustration to the Ukrainians. And they feel they're being held to different standards than some existing NATO member states have been. Um, issues of corruption and democratic reform and other things. So, not, not mentioning Hungary by name? Uh, up for, for example, um, and yet day two was much better. Uh, they were on a much better page. G seven statement was much stronger. And I think actually one of the most important, uh, developments was when president Biden mentioned that the United States was finally looking at providing attackers for Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, that could be a real game changer on the battlefield. And if that, in fact, does happen, and there have already been some indications that the Ukrainians are receiving them or are about to receive them, 
um, that will be a very positive and significant development. But I, I think uh, one other factor I just mentioned is uh, Finland became a member. Turkey's uh, President Erdogan dropped his objections to Sweden. So when the Turkish parliament ratifies Swedish membership, um, Russia's border with NATO with Finland's membership is now essentially double. And Sweden is a capable uh, military as a capable military. Um, this is not going well. The NATO alliance stayed largely united. There were some divisions over Ukraine, countries more in NATO's east, much more willing to open the door to Ukraine than the United States, Germany, as you indicated. Um, but uh, a mixed bag ended better. So it's better that it ended on a positive note than if it ended on a sour yeah, and another fringe benefit of the Sweden and Finland joining, the Baltic Sea is now effectively a NATO lake, which is pretty damn awesome. Because that means all these discussions we used to have on this podcast and elsewhere about the security threat to the Bal the Baltics, the problems of the, the Savalki Gap, or as our friend Ben Hodges calls it, the Savalki Corridor, because we want to keep it open. Um, those are diminished now. I mean, it's much easier to defend the Baltic states with Sweden and Finland in the alliance. Michael, M, uh, your thoughts on, on the outcome. I, I painted this optimistic glass half full picture um, basically because I got what I, I completely expected. I mean, I was in Kiev uh, back in May and the Ukrainians were clearly pushing really, 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 really hard to get this invitation, every Ukrainian official. But when I listened carefully to what U.S. and European officials were, were saying, it was very clear to me what the outcome of this summit was going to be specific security guarantees for Ukraine from individual NATO or G7 members and this NATO-Ukraine uh, council, which I think the importance of which should not be diminished. I think that's really important. It gives Ukraine a seat at the table. Um, but but uh, So I'm looking at it as the half glass half full. Uh, you feel free to destroy my optimism if you so choose. No, I, look, I think materially, substantively, it, it actually was a positive outcome. Uh, if you strip aside some of the um, the 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 heightened rhetoric and and high temperature um, moments from particularly with regards to this communique that Zelensky preemptively tweeted about, thus causing a great deal of consternation uh, among the American delegation. Um, what did you see? You had uh, Alexei Reznikov, the defense minister, tweeting whole packages of military aid that had been agreed to and negotiated on the sidelines of this two-day event in Vilnius. Um, you've got essentially a, 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 the, the dropping of the uh, membership action plan, which had been introduced in Bucharest in 2008, which really was a slow walking, almost kind of suspended animation about Ukraine's uh, membership, uh, which was a major diplomatic achievement, at least uh, in terms of what Dmitry Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, had said just before arriving in Vilnius. And yeah, I mean, I don't like the wishy-washy language about when all allies agree that conditions have been met, because that that's sort of a, a Brechtian waiting for Godot style that could meant happen. <laughs> they'll never agree, but they'll find, you know, flaws to, you know, in terms of anti-corruption reform and et cetera, et cetera. But look, I do think um, there are some almost indisputable facts that have emerged in the last 15 or, or 16 months, however long it's been. Number one. As Defense Minister Reznikov is fond of saying, Ukraine is already a de facto member of NATO, right? Interoperability of the military is proceeding apace. Pretty soon you're going to be seeing Ukraine only fielding 155 millimeter shells, the NATO standard, and getting resupplies, which are almost infinite. Not, I shouldn't say that. I know the, the military uh, geeks on Twitter will, will roast me for that. But you know what I mean? They can be mass produced in a way that the old uh, Soviet era shells right. could be. Um Ukraine is now fielding uh, Western tanks. They will soon have a, a similar coalition in the sky, F-16s, possibly uh, Swedish Gripens, which might actually now move forward a lot quicker with Sweden's accession into NATO. Um, Ukraine will, I think, eventually be a member of NATO. I've been tr telling my Ukrainian friends, look, uh, as long as you're getting the security assistance you need to fight the war, nobody is under any illusions in Kiev or elsewhere that you know, they were going to join NATO and then suddenly invoke Article 5 and right. 829 countries would come to their defense to fight Russia. I mean, that, that's just, this is fantastical nonsense. Nobody was under any illusions. But use this for leverage. Get the things that you need, like such as attack, such as F-16s. Uh, 
basically win a war against Russia single-handedly, doing that which NATO was founded 74 years to, ago to do collectively. And suddenly, not only will you join NATO, but you will be the indispensable ally of NATO to which other countries in the alliance will come, descend upon the capital city of Ukraine for generations to study how you, right. you fall Russians and lick them. And then, as we were discussing earlier, the, the intelligence aspects that went into this. I mean, Ukrainian spies are going to be um, trading at a very, very high premium, right? Not, even without NATO membership, given what they've managed to achieve and given their, their fluency, not just in obviously Russian language and culture, but their ability to recruit assets inside Russian Federation territory, uh, which coming back to our earlier discussion. So all told, I'm happy. I think the one area of criticism I have, and you know, I tend to be more self-critical because I can afford to, uh, the United States is a nation at peace um, and it is the world's only superpower. And I know that, that this sort of ruffles feathers in Washington, but when I see news reports that suggest to me that, you know, foreign service types, national security council types, Amer senior American officials got so huffy about Zelensky hurting their fifis that they decided maybe <laughs> time to, we'd have to water down our statement. You know, I, I said on Twitter, like if, if, if you were at a point where you're elevating your amor proper higher than the need to fend off a genocide in the 21st century, it's time to reevaluate your priorities and take some stock. Mm -hmm. You know, Zelensky, he can be a little rude. He can be a little tetchy. I've been to Ukraine many times. I've been shouted at by Ukrainian officials. And I thought, well, that was a bit assholeish. But you know what? Then again, I'm not fighting for my existence, am I? You know, um, and this is of a piece. I'm noticing this now. And I don't know what you would call it, Western war fatigue. But, you know, Ben Wallace is a defense official that nobody has any problems with. Uh, in his own country, conservative and labor both agree Ben Wallace has done a superb job. In Ukraine, again, coming back to what Reznikov told me, uh, the UK electoral fortunes do not concern him at all. He does not lose any sleep because he knows that Britain is solidly behind Ukraine. But when Ben Wallace gets out there and says something like, well, you know, uh, they have to realize that gratitude goes a long way. We're not Amazon taking the train or driving 11 hours to get to Kiev and only to be given a, a list of demands. And look, again, leave decorum and leave the, the, the sort of social niceties out, outside of your, your moral imagination in, in approaching this conflict, mm -hmm. right? If you're, if you're complaining about the, the long schlep to Kiev, uh, my suggestion is stay in Kiev long enough to be pounded with cruise missiles and Shahid drones and watch as the emergency services go and have to pull infants out of the rubble. And then maybe it'll it'll kind of lessen your sense of inconvenience or your, your need to be flattered by your Ukrainian interlocutors. So I make every allowance for Ukrainians to be rude at, at this point and to demand things that they perhaps know they're not going to get. But raising the, the bar that much higher means that the compromise will be that much greater. In other words, the concessions to them yeah. will be... A, a no, I'm... I'm glad you raised that, Michael, because I was, I mean, I have been hearing the rumblings of U.S. officials getting frustrated with, with, with Zelensky along these lines. Those things should be hammered out behind closed doors, and, and, exactly. and that, that shouldn't be aired in public. If they wanted Zelensky to show more gratitude, they could have said it to him privately. Uh, I, 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 I thought that was really a tempest in a teapot. It was bad optics. I think it was overcome at the end. Um, in a very good way, but I'm glad I'm glad you raised that, and we should never forget the Ukrainians are fighting for their very existence right now. I'm going to bring David in here, and David, a couple of things I want, that you can weigh in on anything Michael said here, but I also wanted to get your perspective as somebody who's worked in government, and uh, on, on two things. A, why the U.S. caution? Germany, we expect this kind of caution from. The U.S., I've come to expect a little bit more boldness from. Um, and so we, we the, the, it's the fact that the U.S. is one of the cautious parties here is is a little bit disturbing to me. But on the other hand, the contrast to this, Biden's speech at Vilnius University was positively Truman-esque. I mean, he all but declared a new Cold War, um, and it was it was it was Kennedy-esque, Truman-esque. Pick your pick your Cold War icon. Um, how do you square these two these two things? This is something clearly that Biden's passionate about, but yet the U.S. is the most cautious player here. Well, let me just pick up on a few things, Brian. I'll do it quickly. Um, one, we should be grateful to the Zelensky and the Ukrainians for doing such tremendous damage to the Russian military um, and for being such a 
an admirable example of people willing to fight for their land, for their freedom, and for their lives. So I, I've argued for quite a while that Ukraine would be lucky, uh, rather, let me rephrase that, NATO would be lucky to have Ukraine as a member. Uh, Ukraine obviously would be a major contributor to European security. I would hope that the 25 NATO summit would be held in Kiev. Uh, I think that would be a, a remarkable demonstration to Putin of how he has miserably failed in his efforts to try to exercise a veto over other countries' aspirations. Um, but I, I, I think what Biden also said uh, about uh, downplaying the likelihood of Russian use of nuclear weapons was extremely important. Yes. Because this has been one of the reasons the administration has been so cautious, this fear of escalation that Russia might use tactical nuclear weapons. As President Biden said, we, Europeans, and just as importantly, the Chinese have warned the Russians not to go down this road. And I've always believed that this was very unlikely. And I, I'm very heartened to see President or hear President Biden say he thinks it's unlikely as well. The other issue, though, that the administration has been cautious about is this concern about being dragged directly into war with Russia. Daria Kolonyuk, who's a, a tremendously brave and, and effective activist in Ukraine, pressed Jake Sullivan on Wednesday about this NATO public forum. And he and Sullivan responded basically saying, what do I tell my two-year-old son that the United States is afraid of, a, of, of Russia? And Sullivan said, the president said quite simply that he's not prepared to have Ukraine and NATO now because it would mean that the United States and NATO would be at war with Russia now. Let's be crystal clear about this. Yeah, we are at war with Russia. It is undeclared. It is American and European missiles and bullets and, uh, and other weapon systems that are hitting Russian soldiers, Russian bases. Uh, we are training the Ukrainians to kill the Russians. Um, we, we already are at war. We're, we're not sending our troops to fight this war. The Ukrainians aren't asking us to do that. But I, I think it's it's really important to recognize we've already crossed this Rubicon. And and so we should just do what is right by helping you. And that is the best way to end this war. Nobody wants this war to end sooner than the Ukrainians. They're the ones who are fighting and tragically dying every single day. And the sooner we can do that, the better. And, and I hope also this blows out of the water. And I didn't hear any talk about this this week in, at the NATO meeting about compromises, about uh, ceasefires, armistice, uh, yep. Korea all of these stupid ideas that are out there uh, by, by people who clearly aren't consulting the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians don't support this. They believe they can win. They don't support territorial concessions or compromises, and they don't trust negotiating with Putin. And there's damn good reason for that. I'm trying to catch up with Michael on the four-letter words. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can, yeah. Yo, I know I... Come visit me in Queens, David. You'll be using him a lot more frequently. <laughs> no, I mean, also, David, I'm glad you brought up the the exchange in in, in the NATO public forum with, with National Security Advisor Sullivan, because I thought his answer there was a bit, um, eh, what's the, the word I'm looking for, evasive, because nobody's talking about Ukraine membership now. What Ukraine was after was a timetable, right? An invitation, a timetable. No, but that is a red herring, saying you can't right. get your now. Because that would put NATO at war with Russia. Nobody's talking about that. Go ahead, Mike. Well, what's what's important about, and I, I listened to what Sullivan said very uh, closely and carefully because, you know, I, I don't think I'm telling any, you know, trade secrets here. Ukrainians have been a little suspicious of Jake Sullivan from the very <laughs> beginning of this war because they think, and I, I think there is some evidence that for him, Ukraine, Russia was a distraction and an inconvenience from his sort of grand strategy of pivoting the United States to the East and to a 25 year kind of defense doctrine against China and all that. So, you know, I think to his credit, Sullivan has, has moved with the new conventional wisdom in Washington and uh, has made some important decisions for the benefit of Ukraine. But what he said to Daria, who also asked, and I think this is in the context of reporting such as, you know, the NBC report that, that suggested, um, there was a track two diplomatic mm -hmm. effort yeah. underway led by Richard Haas, formerly the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Tom Graham, formerly a managing director of Kissinger Associates, and Charles Kupchin, who was a, a former Pentagon guy. That th These guys were meeting with Lavrov in New York, 
and just trying to suss out the Russians. And importantly, according to NBC, that this meeting took place with the knowledge of the White House, but not necessarily the encouragement. So Daria makes this point. Look, you know, am I going to wake up one day and have to tell my kid that suddenly the U.S. has imposed Minsk three on Ukraine and we're told stop fighting now. And we're also told we're going to have to give up 20 percent or 15 percent of our land to Russia in order to get a, an unpopular war at stop. To which Sullivan said, you know, something along the lines of U.S. commitment is, as the president has put it, and now is not the time for conspiracy theorizing. So this is very useful because Jake Sullivan has now said that any plan cooked up in Washington to force the Ukrainians to give up land for peace, quote unquote, even though we all know there would be no peace under a Putin regime, um, is a conspiracy theory. So the next time I open the newspaper and I read that somebody is mucking about meeting with the Russians on the sly and members of the National Security Council are aware of it, but don't necessarily endorse it or encourage the results, I have to consider that to be a conspiracy theory as per mm. the National Security Advisor of the United States. But that's very important to get that on the record, right? So that, in other words, the U.S. is categorical. No, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Ukraine ultimately decides its own fate. It ultimately decides how this war comes to a, a close. And as, as David said, I mean, they could not be clearer about this, not just the leadership, the political leadership and the military leadership, but the, the, the polity itself. Poll after poll shows upwards of 80 percent, 90 percent in some cases do not make any territorial concessions, including Crimea, which is now suddenly back on the table as in and it certainly in play militarily with, uh, you know, storm shadows and, and all the rest of it. So, look, I think that was an, another important takeaway from this NATO summit, the, the reaffirmation. Then again, Biden came out, I think, yesterday and said something like we're hoping a counteroffensive allows the Ukrainians to retake as much territory as possible for a future settlement. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, U.S. is imposing something, but the word settlement, I think, is a little premature, and it it, it, it hits the Ukrainian ear very clangorously. Yeah. You know, this is why they're, they're, they're afraid. They don't want to be, have their country sold out by the one country that they cannot afford to alienate or to lose the support of, which is the United States. David, you want to jump in here? Yeah, and I know we're up against the clock, but um, two two things. One is, um, it's not a good look for U.S. private citizens to be meeting with Russian officials who have been sanctioned by the U.S. government. Uh, <laughs> Sergey Lavrov rightly has been sanctioned by by the U.S. government, um, and I have forgotten my second point. So, uh, uh, all I have to say. My question is, what the hell is Lavrov doing in New York if he's sanctioned by the U.S. government? He That's came for a U.N. meeting. So okay. in okay. this host country, we have to. I mean, we've had the Iranian president attend U.N. meetings. Yeah, I, we have to. Okay. It's not really much of a way around that. Well, we are bumping up against the end. I want to give you each a chance to give me some last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week. I, I, I'm sure. I'll, I'll start. I, I think when it comes to figuring out what's going on in Russia, we're not really sure. So I would recommend that U.S. policy and our that policy of our allies remain focused on helping Ukraine yep. win. Help Ukraine win. Whatever Russian chips fall from that will will be and we'll figure out what to do there, plans for scenarios. Um, but we're not going to be able to affect uh, much in the way of change there except through Ukraine. And Ukrainian victory could have enormous spillover effects, obviously not just for Ukraine, but for Belarus as well as for Russia. So keep our eye on the prize, and that is Ukrainian victory. No, I wholeheartedly endorse that. As we both said in the past, David, our best Russia policy is a good Ukraine policy. I remember uh, Michael, point really quickly, uh, by the way, uh, just before Michael goes, sorry. Um, you, you mentioned, Brian, that President Biden gave a really good speech uh, it, uh, this week in, in Vilnius. He gave great remarks in, in Helsinki. Uh, he gave great remarks in Warsaw last year. He has not given a speech in the United States about why support for Ukraine is mm. so important. He needs to address the American people, why it is in U.S. national security interest to support Ukraine and help Ukraine win. Otherwise, I fear he is ceding the narrative to the naysayers out there. I think just yesterday or today, 70 Republicans in the House yep. voted against continued support and assistance yep. for Ukraine. Um, let's catch that uh, before it, it catches too much momentum. Yeah, no, here, here. Michael, last word to you. 
you know, to echo what David just said, you know, every candidate running for president who is not the incumbent and the current president who's getting any kind of media attention is against helping Ukraine, if not openly advocating a Russian victory, right? And I include the, the sort of fringe, no chance Democratic primary candidates in, in this equation here. Except it is Mike very Pence deserves credit. Except nice Mike Pence, right? Sorry. Um, and, and I guess, you know, Chris Christie as well, although I, I haven't heard a foreign policy platform from him. But, but you know, the, the, the point is there's a, a, a rising chorus of opinion that says that this is money better spent at home. Why are we giving it to the Ukrainians, et cetera, et cetera? Look, I will say, um, again, despite some of the ructions in, in terms of, um, you know, communiques and, and opposition to communiques, this was an important development. Uh, also an important development, I, I, I could have gone on at length about Sweden's uh, membership mm -hmm. and also the role that Turkey has played very intriguingly. Uh, even before the, the, the last presidential election, you know, Turkey's relationship with Ukraine is, is something that uh, deserves a lot of scrutiny um, and, and analysis, uh, despite the sort of ex expectations because of the Putin-Erdogan bromance or frenemy relationship, the Turks have been very forward-footed about arming the Ukrainians, mm -hmm. uh, including with things that they have not disclosed they were, were giving. Uh, cluster munitions, this big debate and con controversy with the U.S. announcement, we're providing cluster munitions to Ukraine. The Turks first sent cluster bombs to Ukraine in November 2022, according to Foreign Policy magazine. And people were still skeptical about this report until Turkish cluster bombs turned up in the field and were captured on social media. And I know for a fact the Turkish government does not want any acknowledgement of this security aid package to Ukraine. And it, it begs the question, why are the Turks so hawkish on Ukraine? And it has to do, obviously, with hundreds of years of history over the Black Sea region and also Crimea and the Crimean Tatar Muslim population actually matters. There is a growing movement in Turkey. Um, Mustafa Jamilev, the Crimean Tatar leader and Soviet dissident has met with Erdogan repeatedly from what I understand. So this is a very interesting player to watch. And yes, the, the Turkish accession or, or submission, I suppose, to Swedish membership. I was always of the belief that this was a shakedown or some yep. kind of drug deal that had to go down. And I was always also of the belief it had to do with F-16s. And I was told, no, 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 there's no linkage with F-16s. Well, lo and behold, yeah. I say, yeah, Sweden at the next day, oh, we're sending F-16s to Turkey. So good. I mean, unfortunately, you know, Erdogan is not anyone's idea of a liberal Democrat, but he is a, Turkey is a member of NATO. It has the second largest army in NATO. And the idea that we, we, we mustn't do deals with them for the benefit of Ukraine, which is a far more exigent crisis in Europe right now and in the world, uh, I always struck me as nonsensical. So look, I am I am pleasantly surprised that NATO and the West, quote unquote, has held together as long as it has. And, you know, despite domestic political considerations and crises in all of these countries, and that if, if anything, it's not just the support has plateaued, but materially, substantively, mil militarily increased for Ukraine as time has gone on and, and through victory and also stasis such as now. So this is a very, uh, you know, it, it, we all like to be pessimists and, and sort of dump on ourselves in our own country. But I have to be honest, I, I, I this this is a, a massive development for the good of NATO and for the West and Europe and the transatlantic relationship that sometimes it's easy to lose perspective of. Right. Yeah. No, Michael, you uh, I, I, I agree. I, I, I share your 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 optimism about this. And again, you've given me another idea for a future podcast. Turkey's game and what Turkey you gotta is. Gotta start paying me for these. Uh, I gotta. I, I you just. I got two future podcasts to book you on. So keep your calendar open. On that note, we shall wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Political Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McFowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlanta Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McFowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from swelteringly hot Dallas, Texas, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European 
Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the executive director of the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. And joining us from less swelteringly hot New York City has been veteran journalist Michael Weiss, senior correspondent at Yahoo News and director of special investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Michael's also the author of the book ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, and is currently working on a new book about Russia's VRU. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a lot smarter. Good to be with both of you. Thanks. Good to have I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines. Well-oiled in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you to subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical, and you can now follow us on threads at Power Vertical. Please do join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.